Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. Today, we're talking about carbon frames in the first of a series on road bike frame materials. Myself and Warren Roster, senior technical editors here at Bike Radar, we're going to be covering uh, the range of uh, road bike frames. Um, and today, we're starting with carbon, the one that, well, let's be honest, Warren, it's been, it's, it's the one that most people buy, I would, I would say, in a, in a performance sense. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's without a doubt. You know, you don't see anything but carbon racing the pro tour anymore so no exactly exactly anyway before we get into that warren welcome um how are you sir i'm very good thanks yeah what have you been up to recently uh just lots and lots of bike testing as usual i had a lovely five and a half hour ride yesterday in the pouring rain and a howling gale um which was you know uh, it's one of those soul building experiences i would say um but you know i, I still came home with a smile on my face well, the funny thing, I was out on a shoot yesterday um, and we had to rain, it was rained off, you see, we had to cancel it. So uh, yeah, I'm back out again on Friday to try, try our luck again, which uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully we'll be okay. But um, anyway, um, without further ado, uh, let me introduce our special guest today. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce Jake Pantone, VP of Product and Brand at Envy. I've got that right, Jake, haven't I? Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds right. Great. So uh, how are you, sir? I am doing well. It is... Uh raining and trying to snow outside currently so <laughs> and where are you in the world right now uh we're we, we and myself are based in ogden utah so we are 
in the land of winter. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, you know, Jake is the perfect person to talk about carbon uh, because, you know, Envy is a specialist in the use of material for its bikes, its frames, its wheels, its components. Um, but, uh, you know, Envy makes some of the most sought-after carbon products in the industry today. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, but, Jake, enough of me uh, sort of plugging you and plugging plugging Envy. Um, tell us a bit about you and your role at Envy, uh, just to get us kicked off. And also, you know, a little bit about the brand's expertise in carbon. Okay. Yeah. Um, just stop Any me. Any questions? Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Feel free to feel free to jump in or stop me when I uh, talk too long. I have a tendency to do that. Um, yeah. I mean, bit, bit, of bra- bit of background, you know, Envy was officially founded in 2007. So we've been at it for a while. Um, when the brand was founded, it brought along with it a lot of carbon expertise and uh we you know we we as cyclists had uh the idea and the concepts to create a better ride experience yeah so and you know we had this idea about how we could make a better carbon rim and how we could do that using some you know processes that are uh specific to the strengths of carbon fiber and so you know we we set out to make a better carbon wheel in the process we started making forks and tubing and other composite parts um, to ultimately support the small frame builder community so while we were basically doing a lot of the r d on wheels we needed to generate some uh, form of income some form of cash flow and so that's when we really looked at uh, forks and um, components and tubing and uh, frame parts like chain stays, seat stays, uh, to sort of start establishing um, our position in the bike industry. And we really saw that that custom frame builder market, those small frame builders needed support from a brand like Envy. Um, at the time, if we can go back in history a little bit, it was at a time when a lot of brands were starting to vertically vertically integrate their forks. So we went from like bikes having Easton and Reynolds forks on them to uh, them being same brand forks on those bikes. And as as those brands were exiting the fork market, we decided we would jump in um, so that we could continue to support those small frame builders and us being a small startup. Um, we were happy with the you know small volumes that were, would come of that. Um, so yeah, that's that's Envy's sort of humble humble beginnings there. Eventually, we started selling wills, and you know the rest is you know proverbial history. To that point, we're still here today, and we're still continuing to uh focus and drive innovation on that front um, my role in the company has been kind of that of a typical startup i came from the bike shop came right out of the university uh some of the original some of the original investors at envy um had also invested in the bike shop that a friend of mine had opened and that i was working at and as the years a couple of years went by in the bike shop they had they then said hey we're starting this um composite startup we're going to make wills and we need somebody to build wills and that can help out. And so I just kind of moonlighted a little bit for a while doing wheel builds and helping out there. And then as um, more product and more demands started to come or needs started to come through on the uh, Envy or Edge composites at the time side, I slowly transitioned to a full-time position uh, here here at Envy. And, uh, you know, 16 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> uh, yeah, you mentioned um, Edge Composites there. That was a precursor to Envy. I mean, not many people may know that. Yeah, correct. So we we actually started uh, as called Edge Composites. Um, the original investors had a family of different brands that all had and wore this Edge um, moniker, so to speak. And so they 
they were making all sorts of things. They had, you know, edge holdings and some sand rail, like a, some high performance, you know, ATV type sand, sand, um, sand buggies, race cars, basically. Um, and then some other things they were doing. Uh, and it started with their original company, which is called Edge Products. So anyway, we started as Edge Composites. And as we began to expand and grow, um, being the small company we were, we never really had those big ambitions of being a global brand. Um, and, but we did find, you know, that there was demand globally for the product in about around 2008. We started shipping around the world. And in 2009, we got a cease and desist letter that said, oh, by the way, you can't use this name in Europe. Um, but if you want to, we would happily let you license it for a large sum of money. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, well, nobody really knows who we are anyway. And, uh, you know, we've only been doing this for a couple of years. So we can let's let's take a branding exercise. And so we went through a whole branding exercise and changed the name in um, 2009, right on the cusp of going to Eurobike. And so we changed the name and it was probably about as seamless as a name change and brand change can be. And again, it, it more or less went off without a hitch and we are now NB composites to this day. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, most people will know the brand for, we'll move on to our sort of carbon, carbon material questions in just a moment, but I guess most people know Envy as being, uh, a wheel set brand, but just in the last year, you've you've launched uh, a new a new frame set, uh, the Melee, I believe, um, and have another bike besides that. Um, it, is that a natural transition to move into bikes? Even though most people will know you as a wheel set and possibly a components brand as well. Hundred percent, yeah. I mean, like if you look at the bike industry, instead of the biggest brands out there, a lot of them went the other direction. They started as frame manufacturers and slowly expanded into accessories and components, and then eventually wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we came at it from the other way. Uh, and like I said, from the beginning, we've played a pretty integral role in, um, you know, whether it was supplying forks to the small frame builder or tubing or chain stays and seat stays in a more um, involved role. And then there's been a few projects over the years uh, where we basically manufactured 100% of the tubes for a bicycle. And then they were customized and assembled by meaning the geometry was customized and assembled and then the bike assembled by the manufacturer. An example of that was uh, the independent fabrication, uh, Corvid, I believe is the name of the bike, um, which was a lugged full carbon frame that we manufactured all the tubes and the lugs for. Um, so over the years we've had, a, we, we've, we've played a pretty integral role, um, in helping, uh, some of the composite custom, small custom builder brands that work with composites, uh, uh, be able to achieve their goals. Um, you know, a few years ago we were looking at our business and saying, um, you know, we definitely want to continue to, com- to support the small custom builder. Uh, we've, we've established ourselves as a leader in aerodynamic technology, uh, specifically related to carbon wheels and components. And we're also, you know, doing the same, um, you know, having established ourselves well in basically every discipline of sport with our wheels from World Cup downhill racing to triathlon and everything in between. Um, we also started seeing that more and more of our partners that we were doing OEM with were continuing to introduce and vertically integrate wheels. And so we saw some shrinkage in our business that way as, you know, the carbon wheels that are coming on, um, most bikes are better than ever, you know, these days. And so the initial 
the initial demand for an immediate upgrade is not the same today as it was years ago. I mean, people still still do the upgrade, and we still see a lot of that as our core business. Um, but it became apparent to Envy that it was it was time to uh, look to our health and our future and to see how we wanted to grow and expand. Um, and of course, going to frames is a natural progression for a brand that is um, like us who are carbon experts with aerodynamic expertise and all the sort of puzzle pieces uh, exist to build to build Envy as a as a frame and bicycle manufacturer. Well, let's let's jump on that then. Let's segue into sort of talking about frames specifically then. So slightly, slightly away from Envy, but just more about frames in general. You know, uh, you mentioned lugging then, and I suppose the first carbon bikes, correct me if I'm wrong, the first carbon bikes were, you know, they came lugged. Uh, why, why, why was that initially? And, uh, and, and what sort of time are we talking here? Are we talking sort of early 2000s, late 90s, or even earlier than that maybe? Um. Yeah, I mean, probably probably earlier, and I'm definitely not the the uh, expert in the history of the carbon frame. <laughs> no, sure. Um, but I mean, we. I, mean, we I, can, all... I can I can probably jump in and just give us a little bit of. I'm not an expert, but um, <laughs> I've been around far too long. Um, I mean, I would say there's been quite a few kind of carbon milestones. I'd say the Colnago concept from 1988. Um, I mean, Colnago had an Olympic time trial bike um, that was carbon back in '84. But the 86 concept that they made in conjunction with Ferrari, um, that used carbon tubes and lugs mm. when any other carbon bike out there was was carbon tubes and alloy lugs. So they were kind of the first brand to go full carbon. There have been a few others along the way. You know, guys like Kestrel were, were really good in that. Moving up to about 89, another Colnago, there's the concept C35, and that was like the first carbon kind of monocoque design that embraced aerodynamics. You know, it's really rudimentary aerodynamics. It was yeah. kind of a an Italian artist's interpretation of what what something aero would be. I doubt it would be particularly brilliant in a wind tunnel. But um, when we're talking about monocoque, it's yeah. all one piece, right? Yeah. And so it certainly looked super fast. Mm. Um, obviously, you can't mention, you know, fast carbon bikes without the Lotus. You know, yeah. the Lotus Pursuit bike, you know, Mike Burroughs, you know, God rest him, designer of the original TCR, you know, teamed up with Lotus, created the Carbon Pursuit bike, which, you know, Chris Boardman piloted. Um victory 92 barcelona olympics world hour record you know and i just think that you know that that bike without that bike and this is getting a little bit partisan here so apologies for that jake um without that bike british cycling wouldn't be what it is today no. and i don't think we'd have things like team sky or you know in household names cav wiggins you know it's, yeah you a know. keystone isn't it yeah. a, a, it's, a it's a keystone moment and it you know it stems from a really radical different carbon bike so radical in fact they banned it but um, there we are. <laughs> yeah. Then you move on from that, you know, and then I'd say for the big mass production kind of thing, you know, uh, 99 Cannondale Super 6. I'm not talking the Evo here. I'm talking the original Super 6, which was their first their first full carbon. You know, it's a 6.8 kilo bike, a frame that weighed 1,050 grams. You know, it was ground. Absolutely. You know, it, it kind of, it started the, the flyweight, you know, um, the silly flyweight like competition of the early early noughties. Yeah. And the one that absolutely smashed that would be the Scott C R one, you know, a nine hundred gram frame that was raced in the tour. Um it, it kind of I think bikes like that were kind of proof of concept that that because up until that point, you know, the, the Pro Tour races that you were still seeing, you know, guys like Lotto racing titanium. There are a lot of a lot of aluminium bikes with carbon back ends being racing that and then then this full carbon bike comes along that's really, really light, but stiff enough. And had all the dynamics that it needed to be, and I think that's one of those keystone bikes again that just prove a concept of what carbon could be. 
Yeah. And were you telling me that Envy supplies some of the some of the tubing here, Jake? Maybe you you want to you want to chime in a little bit. Some of the tubing for some of the frames of these bikes. No, I mean so all those all those bikes well predate. I mean the majority of those uh, yeah, yeah, well yeah. predate I mean, I, I, you know, existed. But uh, I'm getting myself t- tied here. <laughs> yeah. from, from, I mean, from a personal point of view, yeah. I've got a custom Pali Z Zero, one of the original rim brake ones, and um, you know that's that's Envy tubing and. You know, it's a yep. beautiful thing, and I still ride it, and and uh, still cover it most days. Yeah, yeah. So some of those brands that we worked with for sure were Parley. Um, yeah, I had a, a Z3, excellent bike. Uh, you know, the tubing, the the rear chain stays, seat stays were all molded at Envy um, in the early days. That was actually my one of my first um, tasks and jobs when I when I was hired at Envy was to learn composites a little bit and. Uh, they wanted me to kind of understand the process. And so I was set to work um, molding seat stays for the Parley Z3. And so that was one of the, that was one of the first, first things I did in terms of a hands-on job at Envy Composites um, was learning how, you know, carbon is cut and placed in a mold and how the bladders work and how the tooling works and all of that. That was one of the first things I did. And we, we supported, um, yeah. So going back, you know, basically from 2007 on, is when we started to really start supporting um, that frame builder market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I just say like, just going back to when we were kind of brainstorming this series and we're talking about like carbon, mm. and everybody was, we were meeting some ideas, and I said we should be talking to Envy, and every, and you know, it's quite a few yeah. standing voices going, "What? But they just make rims." We're going, "Ah, actually, you yeah, know, it's they, a lot they, deeper than that." Yeah, the, the, the history of their business is is far more involved in. In carbon fiber, you know, carbon fiber as a material, and, and what you can do with it, and and you know, and that's when I brought up. I've got a bike that's made with their tubes, yeah. But I'm still waiting for the delivery of my melee. There's there's some, oh, yeah. some issues with um with a, a, a misfiring shifter that uh, our suppliers here in the UK haven't managed to solve yet. But we'll get there in the end. We'll definitely <laughs> we'll definitely get there in the end for sure. Um, so um, open question to the floor then. You know, um, so why why is carbon such a popular frame material? Generally speaking, Jake, when you first came into the business, it sounds like, you know, you had to work, you know, understand how to design and manufacture a, a, a carbon frame, understand those technologies and so on. There must have been a sort of a moment, you know, you were doing that because you understood something about carbon that made it such a great frame or potentially at the time, a great frame for carbon frame manufacture. What is that? Yeah. And I think maybe to full, I mean, every, I guess everybody more or less understands why carbon in the fact that it's light, but really the, the superpower that carbon has is sort of its limitless ability to be tuned. Um, and you know, it's superpowers, it's tensile strength. So, um, meaning it's ability to carry a, a lot of um, load under tension, um, you know, compared to other materials. And, you know, carbon itself in its application in cycling is, has had a, uh, had a, a long um, sort of history and development. You know, as you mentioned, it's, it's been being used in cycling since, you know, you know, very early days um, for us anyway, yeah. <laughs> the 80s and even a bit probably before that a little bit in terms of just experimental type things. And, and yeah. how it's being used is, of course, uh, changed a lot over the years because initially it was sort of used as a replacement to existing technology. So, like we were lugging bikes, right? And so we started replacing round tube lug, or still, you know, let me back. We started replacing metal tubes with carbon tubes, um, yeah. but they were still lugged to metal um, lugs, 
or in lug, metal lugs and things like that and bonded and glued. And then as, as time progressed, we began to learn how our, our molding techniques became more sophisticated. And uh, eventually we figured out how to make monocoque frames. And then um, from there, you know, there's bladder material improvements and, and a lot of progression that ultimately today, you know, when we, when we say why carbon, it's because it, there's very, there's very few limitations on the material in terms of what you can do with it when it comes to tuning it for an application. So today we see applications of carbon that range from, you know, super, you know, be, between the carbon material itself and the resin system that's used within the carbon, you can see carbon used in everything from uh, brake rotors on a formula one race car yep. um, to, you know, completely un, you know, things like cell phone cases and pretty, you know, and, yeah, and everything yeah. and everything in between. And so in cycling, we've seen, um, you know, today we've probably seen, uh, basically everything more or less distilled down to basically a monocoque front triangle, um, on a bike, some cases, complete bikes. And, and then in some cases, there's some custom bikes out there that are using a tube to tube construction with some overwrap, um, one of which would be like our Envy custom road bike that we launched uh, two years ago. Mm. And yeah, the, the ability for manufacturers to, you know, or I should back up and say our carbon techniques are very refined today and people understand the material well. And yet with all that we understand and all that we know, there's still progression happening um, in terms of the material itself and its application in cycling. So yeah, with with the material itself, you know, carbon can be, you know, my basic understanding of it is that carbon can be manufactured in in different ways using different kinds of fibers and different resins in order to achieve what it is you're aiming for, plus different orientations as well. Um, just tell us a little bit about that. How 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 might you know what might you be able to achieve with a with it with a carbon layup or a carbon, uh, you know, a, a resin that essentially glues it all together. Um, what what can you achieve? You can go from one extreme to another, super stiff versus super flexible. Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to the the use case and like what is the design intent of the product you're trying to create. And so when we when we write a product brief, or when I write a product brief um, for a new product, we're you know, we're specifically looking at who's the customer, what are we trying to get out of this product, what are the milestones that we achieved with the previous generation of said product, or, you know, exactly, you know, where do we want to improve upon it? And at the end of the day, it's always a game of finding balance and, and minimizing the trade-offs um, that come because even as great as carbon is, is as a material, um, you're still, you're still, um, forced to make decisions you, you know you you can have light you can have strong you can have flexible you can have stiff um you can have impact resistant uh you can you know in the days of rim breaks you had to manage heat and so there's you're always trying to balance those trade-offs and that that comes down to choosing uh the right fiber the right layups the right resin system to sort of find that balance that you're looking for in in the product so your car, your carbon is always going to be super, you know, really different depending on its usage case, right? So a, form, a carbon in a Formula One car, or different zones of Formula One car, be incredibly different from what you'd find in on a bike or even in in the in the Artemis space space rocket, right? The, the usage case dictates what you how you create that carbon. A hundred percent, you know, and a lot of that can come down to the resin system, of course, as well. Um, you know, when it comes down to 
carbon, the actual carbon threads themselves, um, you know, other than the aerial weight of the, the fiber in terms of like the panels and the sheets that it comes in, you know, the material itself is pretty much the material. Um, carbon is an element and, <laughs> and you, you know, it's pretty much it is what it is. It really comes down to like how it's manipulated. Um, and it's sort of in terms of like how light it is in terms of its aerial weight or heavy. So you've all, you've all heard of like super high modulus and low modulus and, um, meet there's medium modulus and, uh, it really comes down to using the right material for the, the job at hand. And so for us, like with, with our carbon rims, for example, uh, you know, the demands on a carbon rim are very different than on a frame, for example, because, and that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of people may or may not understand with a carbon rim is that manufacturing a carbon rim is in a lot of ways far more complex than a, and then a frame, um, yeah. because of the demands on that product. You have, you have this thing that has to be perfectly round. Uh, you have, it has to be able to support the spoke tension. So you've, you're pulling in on it, it, you know, 24 holes in the rim, you're pulling in yeah. on it with the spoke tension. Then you have a rider that's riding on it, things rolling, he's impacting it into things. And oh, by the way, this thing also has to hold um, a tire on it to precise dimensions that is under pressure. And, you know, you have to retain that tire. So there's a, the, the, a tire, a carbon rim or a wheel in its complete assembled system on the bike is, is a very complex uh, component of the bicycle. Mm -hmm. um, the frame, of course, holds all those components on it, it has to support the rider weight, has to uh, transmit and uh, has to transmit your inputs and also has to uh, absorb the feel of the road and vibration yeah. so that it's comfortable. Um, but a lot of way in for all intents and purposes, a frame is a static, is static. It's it's just holding all the things that you put onto it. Um, and so the 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 material you use in a frame is going to be different than the material you use in a wheel set um, because they have different uh different demands put upon them. Um so yeah, that, that's a uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, I mean it's interesting because you know we get you know I'll aim this one at you, Warren, a little bit. I think we, you know lots of brands have um, carbon frames with different kinds of technologies interwoven within them or marketed as being in, in them. Uh, Bianchi's countervail, for example, uh, yeah, I mean, it springs thing, to mind. Yeah. There's lots of these things going, you know, that are around in in the, in the market, and I, I suppose. It, that that's just a, a marketing ploy, or is it that people make you know making changes to? Yeah, it's something I've, yeah, it's something I've, you know because it's been around a long time. You know, countervail. I mean, Bianchi's say that that's got a viscoelastic quality to a, one yeah. of the resin layers, which allows some vibration damping. Mm -hmm. But you know, prior to that, they they um, before they had countervail technology, they were infusing like the fork legs and the rear stays with um, like a Kevlar weave. Yeah. Um, you know, on a on a much simpler scale. You know, GT's grade, um, their gravel bike, um, the the rear stays and that are effectively like a fiberglass. Mm. You know, so it's like a fishing rod kind of flexibility to it, and it actually works. You know, it's mm. uh, it seems very simple and very. But you know what? I, what I'd like to ask an expert like you on that, Jake, is there's you know you, we we see a lot of kind of brand names associated with with some of these technologies. You know, like Dyneema with their sort of claim to have the strongest carbon fiber weave, and and there there are lots of kind of rivals to that. Um, is that something that you guys investigate or do, you know, if, do, do engineers kind of know at source what they're trying to achieve with that, that material? Cause it seems kind of otherworldly to average cyclists, but 
Is it is it more commonplace in just carbon manufacturing, you know, the carbon industry, as it were? Um, yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, we're always looking at different materials and trying to understand how they can be incorporated into um, into our products um, to achieve certain certain characteristics, right? And uh, you know, over the years, we've we've certainly used um, a, a variety and a wide array of different um, you know composite technologies, so to speak, or you know material technologies to achieve certain things. You know, um, it's, you know, years ago we were using a specific kind of unique resin in our downhill wheels that had more of a sort of a pliable elastic property to it that allowed it to basically not crack it was more dentable so to speak um you know we've we've definitely played with you know inner laminate sort of uh inclusions you know things like you're talking about where uh you can use fiberglass or um silicone or all sorts of other things that you can sort of mold into inner laminate you know that it's but then it comes down to looking at the trade-offs of what doing that means. So a lot of times, you know, getting things to bond to like getting a carbon and its resin to bond to a Kevlar can be challenging. And so I don't know, like back in the day, I had a, I had a, a bike that had um, Kevlar inner laminate on the tubes. I won't say the brand name, but you may know what, what bike it was, but it had, it had Kevlar in the tubes for, for that property um, to provide some, you know, damping and make the thing ride a little smoother uh wasn't the lightest carbon frame in the world but um i remember crashing in a crit on said bike and breaking the frame and the tubes all broke at the at the inner at the inner in intersection of the kevlar in the tube and the carbon itself it just like separated um yeah. because those are two materials that don't really want to bond to one another very very well um i don't know, for envy we we really try to put most of our eggs into the the carbon material basket itself and we use the the design and the and the construction of the laminate or the layups schedule so you know basically i mean for for those that may not fully understand the process carbon comes in big sheets and it's cut into patterns and then you lay it up by hand into a mold um and you can sort of change the lengths and the widths and everything of of the fiber and the fiber angle orientations to achieve certain properties and so we we rely very heavily on on that expertise to achieve ride quality out of a pro product that we want when it and a good example is for is our custom road bike that we make so um you know looking at that bike specifically and what we're trying to achieve out of it uh you know, it has an integrated seat mast, for example, and a lot of people are like, well, why the integrated seat mast? Um, and a lot of why the integrated seat mast is because, A, it's a custom bike, so we can, you know, if we can't get your saddle height right building you a custom bike, then we don't have any business doing a custom bike for you. <laughs> um, That's fair enough, yeah. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a real big fan of the integrated seat post, really. Am. Yeah. But the uh, but far too many, you know, and uh, you know, I've been to Ogden. I've seen you. I've, I've seen what you guys do out there and stuff. And I understand your weather. So if it's anything like, you know, they're kind of damp, drizzly, gritty stuff that we get here in the UK. The last thing you ever want is a seat post that slips. And 
an integrated seat post takes that away. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're <laughs> a far cry from the weather of the UK, but yeah, for a few weeks a year, we probably could share that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like the integrated seat mass is really like, because we can, because of the way the frame is constructed in a tube to tube, we're looking at any way we can, you know, then because tube to tube is not as light as a monocoque construction. Um, but we want to have the customizable or the custom customizability of the frame. We have to do this tube to tube type construction, but and then to get the weight back down, things like a integrated seat mast help us do that. Additionally, we can design the laminate in that custom or in that um, integrated seat mast to be more compliant and to flex more um, naturally than a seat post would, um, for example. And in the same bike, we of course make the bottom bracket, seat tube, down tube junction, and chain stays. Um, you know. We we orient the fibers in a way such that we're all about power transmission so that when you step on the pedals, the bike moves forward with efficiency and it you feel that snappy ride response from the bike. And then of course forks have a different requirement and you're trying to balance, you know, response and durability and impact toughness and things like that out of the fork. Um and then there's other tubes on the bike that are just they're sort of less um less critical in some of those. Um, rolls, for example, a seat stay, you, you know, we've all seen how thin and um, thin seat stays have gotten over the years. Uh, everybody who's had a carbon bike's probably pinched, sat there and pinched their top tube or down tube and, and been a little bit shocked and awed by how it moves <laughs> and it's not a rigid yeah. structure. Um, and so it's really, that's the beauty of carbon. Like that's something you would really struggle to do with aluminum, right? Is you can mm -hmm. definitely make you can definitely taper the tube and do things with um, aluminum, but you're definitely limited in terms of how refined you can make that structure in terms of wall thicknesses and stiffness profiles in different areas of, of the tube. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's really the game we're playing with carbon is, is really trying to understand what you want the part to achieve in terms of its performance on the road or the trail. And then this constant, uh, you know, under learning process, um, this learning cycle where, and feedback loop where you are constantly iterating, uh, mm. the laminate itself to, I know, achieve whatever you could say is optimal. <laughs> I, I tell you, Jake, you're, you're doing a great job of preempting the questions that I want to ask you. Um, so th thank you for that. But um, yeah, I'll I'll ask you a question that I haven't actually got noted down here to ask you, in because you mentioned several times, you know, iteration and imp improving the the carbon frame. How how do you test that? Do you test that in a lab? Do you get on the bike and ride it? Do you use fleet of test ride? How how does that work when you're prototyping? You know, because if if carbon if carbon iteration is is obviously so important, um, you know, that needs to be tested and verified, right? Yeah. So I think there's there's a lot to, there's actually kind of a lot to unpack there because I think carbon is in a whole or as an industry, and we've seen this in other industries as well outside of cycling, but you, a super material is introduced and then there's a myopic focus to take that material to the extreme of one thing or another, whether it be stiffness or, or lightweight. Um, let's choose lightweight because that's what carbon's best known for is being super light. Um, so yes, like we've seen some very lightweight frames come to the world, um, you know, 600 gram frames, especially when we started, it was, there was, a, there was a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interest in, you know, building those ridiculously light frames, um, mm. and bikes and whole bikes as a whole, right? Like there was plenty of 10 pound bikes. Um, you'll have to forgive my, uh, 
inability to convert to kilograms immediately off the top of my head. <laughs> um, Not a problem. Yeah, very, very light bikes that, you know, were basically, uh, you know, just crazy light. And then, but there's a, there's those extremes. But then there's like really like the the production bikes that were quite light, like, you know, take your 700 gram frames. Mm. Um, and I, you know, we've done the same with wheels. Like there's some reality that in order to get things that light, the materials you have to use and the way you have to construct them to be, um, safe and strong often results in a thing that doesn't ride that great. Like it's yeah. going to transmit every single bump and pebble in the road straight to you, the rider. Um, and we've we've seen this in in cycling to a certain degree. Um, we've definitely seen this in alpine skiing, where they tried to make a carbon skis because they're super light, but then you ski them and there's just zero damping. You fill every bump, and they're they're fairly harsh and abusive. And so, you know, for Envy, we have a very uh, I won't I don't know I mean I don't know how unique it is from what other brands are doing, but what is unique is that we have under this roof of the headquarters here is we have all of our manufacturing of the wheels. Um, and then of course the engineering and the test lab all in the same building. And so there's sort of a starting point, which is we have to make the product safe first. Like there are um, requirements as defined by various, you know, governing bodies that say, this is what the base minimum strength of a head tube needs to be and a fork and a wheel. And so when we design a product, the first thing we do is we basically put a laminate together put it into the test lab and put it through a basic qualification to say like, is this thing safe enough to start iterating upon? Um, and then also of course, test writing. And so, uh, however many iterations it takes to get there, we get there eventually. And then we start writing the product. Um, and I can tell you right now, there's quite a few different products over the years that we've scrapped, um, that on paper seemed like they should have been the right product. Um, but they did not ride as well as the other product that was maybe 20 grams heavier or yeah. whatever. Um, and, and we, we, we weigh heavily the ride quality of a product, um, over simply the performance metrics on paper. Um, the same goes for like an aero project with, you know, with, with aerodynamics in carbon wheels. So we've had, we, we've, we've scrapped, um, wheels that were, aerodynamically more superior in the wind tunnel to the product that we ultimately released simply because when we wrote it on the open road, it did not ride as well. It did not deliver um, as enjoyable of an experience as the slightly slower product did, because it's, it's all about finding that, that balance of, you know, that balance of uh, all the, all the different performance metrics. And, and I think, you know, anytime we, we get, you get my, myopically focused on it being the lightest weight thing or the stiffest thing or the strongest thing, uh, you can ultimately end up with a product that just is not that, um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's, you know, functional in the real world, I guess. Yeah, I think we had a. I think early noughties, we probably had a whole generation of bikes that yeah. that did that, yeah. like, driven by the kind of weight weenie fad. I mean, you know, I was testing bikes at that time, and you would go, "Hey, this bike's five point four kilos," and you rode it and went, "I never want to ride it again." <laughs> you know, yeah. It was so, so stiff. It was so it was pain. You know, bikes that were painful to ride. Yeah. And so I'm really glad we've moved away from that, and and like the development and design seems to be more of a Venn diagram, bringing in we need elements of stiffness, we need elements of comfort. You know, mm. it's so good on road cycling, especially that comfort's not a dirty word anymore, mm. and. You know, aero brings into that, and then you have to find this really nice balance, which kind of brings me to the um, when you're looking at the melee and your your custom road, because like you put the two bikes side by side, and they're very very similar, um, uh, like visually. Um, obviously, the advantage of being with the custom road is that hand built, well, they're both hand built, but and that kind of hand built service to it. Um, so it's a kind of a two part question on the melee. You probably have to find a median of how the bike's going to ride compared to the custom road i'm assuming you can offer the customer more choice you know yeah do you want it stiff do you want it comfortable do you want it uh, aside from you know the geometry and the, and the sizing and, and how how do you how do you actually arrive at at um say something like the melee which is obviously for a, a much wider audience yeah fair questions and that's that's actually probably like one of our most pot or most common questions that come up when people are looking at the two bikes that are kind of like, well, which, which one's for me and uh, you know, why this one over the other. Um, so we started with the custom road a few years ago, we said, we're going to get into the frame business. Now is the time. And this was probably 2018 when we made the decision to commit to it. Uh, and we said, you know, what, what is the most authentic way Envy can enter the road bike market? Um, and we did say, we want to start with the road bike. And we said, well, Envy, what do we have that others don't? The first thing we have is we have manufacturing capabilities here in Ogden, Utah. Um, the second thing we looked at and said is, well, we have aerodynamic expertise. Um, we, you know, we know how to we know how to do this. Uh, so, like, what? Let's look and see how we can introduce something that's a little bit different than what everybody else is putting out there. And for us, that was this concept of a high touch high performance experience so you know the the custom frame builders of the world build beautiful bikes they're bespoke they're custom custom paint custom geometry but primarily out of metal um there are some carbon ones but those carbon frame manufacturers just frankly don't have the resources in terms of like going to the wind tunnel and doing a lot of iterative work in terms of aerodynamic development which just frankly it takes years to kind of build that foundation of understanding in terms of aerodynamics and what that means on the road and whatnot and so we said well we we know aerodynamics we have resources that way we have a good understanding of um what frame shapes work with wheels because we've tested we've developed our ses wheel line over the years and nearly all the super bikes that have existed over the last decade so we have a good understanding of like what makes a fast what frame shapes are fast and things like that 
And then we said, well, because we manufacture here in Ogden, we know how to make, you know, tubing, we know how to mold complex parts here. Um, let's see if we can do that. And then through that eventually came this idea that, Hey, you know, we're, let's figure out how to do a custom bike. Like the reality is we're not going to be making, you know, we're not going to be making like a mass production run of these, even if they were stock or fixed geometry bikes. Yeah. Um, and the process we'd come up with for assembling these bikes was such that it didn't matter if we were making fixed geometry bikes or custom, the process was the same. So whether I was just making, you know, a dozen 56 centimeter bikes, I still had to cut the tubes. Uh, I still had to bond them together. I still had to do the over wraps. Um, and, and so we, we said, you know, this bike needs to, this bike needs to be custom. So we set out to figure out how we can offer like a full custom bespoke bike from paint to geometry. And that leads to your question to also, um, how versatile can we make this bike? And because it is custom and we're cutting the tubes, things like chainstay lengths and head tube angles are really the main difference between an all road endurance type geometry bike and a world tour race bike, for example. And so with the custom road, the customer can define uh, what kind of, you know, based on what they want out of their bike, they basically can tell us, Hey, I'm going to be racing this. I want it to be very nimble, responsive, um, because it's, I want a pure race bike. And so we can build that or somebody who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of doing, I'm not really racing, but I'm doing long road rides, a lot of, you know, Fondo type stuff. Uh, you know, occasionally you get on a dirt road and I prefer a larger volume tire. I'm probably, you know, I'm maybe going to go do, uh, some of the sportifs in Europe or something like the Belgian waffle ride series in the U S. And so we can say, okay, well, we can, we can put you on this all road endurance type, uh, geometry. And that's, you know, often then we're working saying, okay, they're going to be riding this tire side. So we're going to define, you know, the bottom bracket height and the head tube angle and chainstay length and all of that by that. And then the bike itself, the fork, you know, we, we built the fork and the frame models to um, clear up to a 35 millimeter tire um, with, you know, the proper uh, ISO clearance models built into that. And so, you get a lot of versatility out of the bike. And so when we, when we set out from the custom road to, well, I should back up and say the custom road is the custom road. We launched it. It's a very boutique, um, small batch production pro, um, mm. process and product, I guess. Um, but knowing that we have more customers than we can serve with just this custom bike. We also understood that, fixed geometry monocoque construction frames needed to be in the future as well if we wanted to properly become <clears throat> a bicycle brand and so i would say about halfway into basically once we had established what the custom road was going to be we then start started down the path of what is the melee going to be um, and, and what we said is the first bike we want to bring to market is a modern race bike capable of world tour racing and how bikes are being used today and so what that meant is basically we we took the the raciest geometries of that we had defined by the custom road and we said okay here's all the fixed geometries of a race bike and that's what the melee became um the benefits of the melee is it's again it's iterative so the custom road is custom and so with that came some trade-offs in terms of aerodynamics and weight um, the melee does not have those compromises or trade-offs with the melee. We made the whole bike slightly narrower, uh, which aided in its aerodynamic performance. 
Um, and then as a result as well to the monocoque construction, it is a lighter weight bike than the custom road because you're, you're not bonding and overwrapping every joint on the bike. Yeah. And so they're, they're different animals, but in terms of the, how they ride, um, from a geometry standpoint, the, the race geometry of the custom road and the race geometry of the melee are the same. Um, it just comes down to different priorities and different benefits that come as a result of the different construction processes. Yeah. Um, I'm, it just occurs to me off the top of my head now, and I wonder if I, uh, people listening to this podcast will have the same occurrence to them, you know, 3D printing technology is is coming along in leaps and bounds at the moment. Um, is that something that you guys have con- at least considered? Um, I'm not aware of a product that you guys manufacture at the moment that uses 3D printing technology, although I could be very mistaken in that. Um, have you considered it as a, as a viable alternative or for future development? Yeah, I mean, yeah, honestly, we, there's, we have a few projects in the works that um, utilize the technology in, in different material mediums. Uh, currently, there's nothing on... Currently, there's nothing in that's at a production level that you know we're we're shipping with any of these bikes. But in the R and D process, it's it's very critical. You know, we're three D printing everything from uh, titanium dropouts to top bearing covers to you know stem interfaces. Um, so th- there's definitely a lot of uses for three D printing, and we are definitely uh, exploring our options, so to speak, in terms of you know, using it and then understanding where it's going to best service in the future. I mean, I think coming back to the actual carbon fiber construction, mm. um, I, you know, there, there's a kind of perception out there, um, especially if you're moving kind of handmade custom circles, etc., that that somehow a steel or a tie bike that's been, you know, lovingly crafted, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is somehow a much more of a handmade object than than a carbon fiber bike i think there's a perception out there that people just think that you have a hopper at one end of a factory you chuck a load of carbon in and it spits a frame out the other side but you know it's kind of and i've seen carbon frames being being, you know being made and it's such an incredibly hands-on process i mean how how long does it take you guys to to construct say a a custom road (laughs) Uh, nine months for some cut now (laughs) (laughs) As far as the customers are concerned, a long time sometimes. No, that's what that is. A, that is an interesting point. I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. Like carbon, there's very little about carbon that can be automated. Um, you know, when you take a metal a metal bike, um, whether it be steel or aluminum, the the tubes, you know, for an aluminum bike, could often be extruded or formed in some way, and that's somewhat of an automated process, right? There's not somebody, you know, hand. <laughs> hand forming a tube, so to speak. I mean, they buy the tube and then they're, you know, shaping and doing things like that. But the tube itself is delivered to them um, based on a process from the manufacturer that is somewhat automated. Uh, with a carbon bike, every single tube is hand laid into a mold for the most part. Um, and so for us, like, you know, I'm trying to think of number of parts, but eight or nine different molds um, and for for the custom road parts and, you know, each one of those molds, you know, each one of those parts is hand laid up by the operator, you know, which then goes to the guy who actually assembles and cuts cuts the tubes and glues the frame together and then overwraps the joints. And then somebody has to sand those, clean them up so they can then get painted. And so, yeah, it's uh, carbon is very much a, a hands-on process and it, it's a crafts, it's, it takes craftsmen of sorts to, um, to 
turn the material into a final product. And I think the other misnomer to a certain degree is like, you know, for years we talked about how well metal bikes ride compared to certain carbon bikes. You know, there's this whole like, you know, nothing rides like a steel bike. And um, I might have been guilty of saying that once or twice. We all have, you know, and it's great. <laughs> I still own a steel bike and it's fantastic. But, you know, having gone back to carbon now and the way that we can manipulate carbon and um, tune the ride quality, like nothing rides as good as a carbon bike today. Like if you are looking at performance on from every standpoint, there's uh, really you're really not if you're you can buy metal bikes and that's great and we support that and whatever there's lots of reasons why i probably will have another metal bike in the future yeah. <laughs> but yeah. when it comes to any performance metric at all whether it be you know the whether it be the comfort of the thing weight saving stiffness whatever um a carbon bike is most apt to deliver those those performance metrics that somebody's seeking from from the ride quality in their bike because it's so tunable you know that's that's kind of I, you know i think i think there's that that yeah i mean you can make a you can make a carbon bike ride like any other material by you know by clever manipulation of it but what, what i always find because there's still are naysayers out there that you know that 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 will that will talk to you at shows or or leave comments etc um decrying carbon fiber but I just sort of like, you know, I mean, I had I had one at a show a few years ago where a guy was just going, well, carbon fiber bikes look the same. I was like, well, no, they don't. You know, <laughs> if you if you took a, a 1950s steel bike and then you brought that right up to date to the, say, the late 80s, early 90s, when steel was still being made at the high end, they look the same. Yeah. You know, it's only other technologies that have changed, you know, bottom bracket dimensions and the type of brake or, you know, cable routing, the advent of STI, so you didn't have down through levers and everything. But you look at a an early carbon bike from from the late 80s to a carbon bike of today they're totally indistinguishable i think as it's like this as guys like yourselves are, are learning more and investigating more and bringing so many outside influences into the you know into it we're talking aerodynamics we're talking you know composite orientation etc cetera, etc cetera. The, the 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 level in which bikes have advanced in the 25 30 years that carbon has become all all pr predominant is huge it's a mm. it's a you know it's a you know it's it's like man standing up and walking on two legs compared to the you know to to the original yeah. 1950s you know roadsters sure do you think do you think um do you think you know riders and the market itself has become a bit cynical towards carbon then in, in, in a way yeah i think so i think so and i think that's probably there's an element of of the industry probably not selling as good a tale as it was, and and guys like us that are not not telling that tale, you know, because because one of those things that you know you you're always you know part of it. I remember early in my you know sort of journalistic um, endeavors and stuff, actually going and seeing carbon being made, you know, because you'd always been seeing you know you'd gone to the, you know the frame frame builders and watched them make beautiful things out of steel and tie and and even aluminium manufacturing etc. But then you go to a carbon place and you think, oh, this is just going to be a factory, and you go in there and you just see the amount of detailing and yeah. everything that goes into it you come away going oh my god these are this is the most handmade thing i've seen you know and i'm talking about guys like you know the original time you know when they had their their big weaving machines so yeah. they, were, they were weaving their own tubes of it you know everything looked like a sock yeah you know yeah. and then you had you know these uh incredibly skillful french ladies that were hand sewing you know mm. tubes to to lug pieces and things like that and you're just going this is this is 
this is mad. You know, yeah. you know, it's it's a you know, it's no surprise that time still aren't the force they were because the the amount of time and effort that would have, must have gone into making one of those frames, I, I can't imagine how they were ever making any money. I have, I've got to second that as well. I've been I've been to visited my own uh, you know carbon not my own carbon frame manufacturing plants. I don't own my own carbon frame manufacturing plants, but, you know, obviously. Um, but I've been to brands that do the same the same kind of thing, and the amount of detail that you you encounter when you're there, the stuff that's on the cutting room floor, all the single layers of carbon, if they lay it out onto the floor of a sizable manufacturing room, you, you know, you can cover the entire floor with those materials, and they're all, you know, paper thin. Raise it, it's thinner than that, you know? Um, and it's um, it's remarkable how much... Time and effort and detail goes into you know making a. I mean, I, a I find it. I, you know, I, I find it remarkable that you can buy a. You know, that you can still you can buy carbon frames at like a, you know, a thousand dollars. It still seems to me like, you know, how 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 are they doing this? <laughs> yeah, know, what are your overheads? Sort of thing. It's like it's. Yeah. Well, that and I, I think to that point, the, the reason it comes down to the the complexity of the laminate and the amount of time it takes the hands to put the material in the mold, and so that's when that's when things like fiber weight. Um, yeah, and, and that's why when you see like a frame that's touted as you know ultra high modulus and it weighs you know 800 grams or whatever, the, then that frame's twice as much as the frame that looks exactly the same that weighs 200 grams more or something or 100 grams more. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit of the game we play with our you know our premium wheel collection and our foundation level wheel collection. It's mm-hmm. it's we use a heavier fiber in the foundation wheel, which means we can put it requires fewer pieces to achieve uh, the strength, which means it's a shorter layup time, which means it's a faster cycle time through manufacturing and production. Um, you know, it's, it's basically a quarter of the number of pieces going into that wheel compared to a premium wheel. Um, and, and on paper, if you're just looking at the weight, you're like, Oh, you know, it only saves X, but like, um, what was happening on the back end is it's saving a massive amount of time. And so when you look at those, um, those frames that are, yeah, like, you know, a thousand dollar frame versus a, you know, $2,500 to $3,000 frame or something or up from there, it, it, it really comes down to like the, it comes down to the refinement of the laminate and the number of pieces required to achieve those very specific sort of area specific performance metrics in the bike. So just throwing a bunch of carbon in the mold to create a carbon frame in the shape is one option. And then, you know, you can basically refine it down to like that same frame uh, being super refined, saving in some cases hundreds of grams just based on uh, sharpening your pencil on every single area of the bike uh, in terms of the laminate. And so that's like when people look at carbon bikes and they're like, oh, that thing's as much as a new motorcycle. And how is it that a motorcycle is, you know, yeah. that whole that whole discussion was because a motorcycle is a lot of the times stamped and machine parts, you know, it's, it's not, there's not, I mean, it's assembled by hand in some cases, others it's automated, but it's, it's just a very different process. And yeah, like if you're basing, you know, speed per dollar or horsepower per dollar, then yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a difficult proposition. But when it comes to like, when you're just looking at simple, the cost of the parts and the production time, the reason bikes cost what they do is because of that. It's, it's a pure function of how long does it take the thing to be made? Um, and, and the materials and, and the infrastructure required. It's like the carbon itself is, is not the expensive thing in the bike. No. The carbon is not the, is not the cost driver in carbon. Uh, the thing that it's makes time. carbon products expensive is the infrastructure and the time required to turn it from 
carbon to something useful. Yeah. Is it, is it also a case with, with, you know, the premium guys like yourselves that the R and D time and the development time and the understanding of the material time, you know, that all has a cost that all has a, a bearing on the end product, you know? And I guess the, leading on from that is like, um, how far can you go? I do you ever envision the day where where your paymasters, as it were, were just going to go, just make the best thing, ir- ir- irrespective of you know um, cost caps. You know how 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 much further do you think it could be pushed while still maintaining the balances that we've talked about already? It's hard to say because like I feel like every time we launch a new product, when we launch it, I'm usually I feel like I don't know how this thing could get any better, um, and. You know, I like we look at it and we're like, we don't, you don't know the next thing. And it's, it's interesting how fast it's happened, but like, look at a bike today that has any cables or housing showing outside of the frame. And it feels like the stone age (laughs) to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, that happened pretty dang, that happened pretty fast. Like that happened over the course of the last three years, basically to where, you know, it was here or there. You saw a bike full, you know, the bikes that had full hidden housing and everything looked um, very prototypish, you know, in, industrial design concept type bikes. And, and now today, like it, hidden cables and housing, one piece bar stems, like all of that is, is the expectation. Um, and you know, that the, 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 sh- the thing has shifted. So there's like sort of that aesthetic performance expectation. Um, but I mean, it's, it's just the progression, like disc brakes opened up a whole new world of design capability and then once you're doing disc brakes, well, now it's like, where can I hide the hoses? Because now I don't have to worry about cable paths and routing. And so now it's like, well, now I can put them wherever I want. And, you know, so the, the progression. So I don't know what the next thing is that's going to change. But, you know, we're seeing the writing on the wall to a certain degree with wireless shifting systems. So, like, you know, not having to route wires now means something else can change. And, um, you know, and I, I don't know where we go from here necessarily but we'll know when we get there. Yeah, it's certainly exciting. I mean, I, over the, yeah, I mean, over the, you know, 25 plus years I've been doing this, I think I've written op-eds yeah. every five or six years of like, have we reached peak bike? Can it <laughs> literally get any better than this? And and it always can. I mean, and, you know, and it's, you know, and, and you know, even though I've been doing this for a long time, I'm still caught out by it. That's why I own so many bikes. I'm going, I'm going to buy this bike. That's peak bike. It's never going to get any better. Yeah. And in two years down the line, oh, this is, yeah, this is much better. Because now you have a chronology of bikes in your, in your garage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had that. I too poor to keep all those bikes sitting around. <laughs> I don't know if Warren's told you about his garage. I've heard it's quite extensive. <laughs> well, we we moved house, so I had two garages because I we couldn't fit any more bikes. Sounds like no. you maybe need to come do a tour of your garage. <laughs> yeah, there you, is, you there should. Is, there, yeah. there is actually a tour of my um, a big chunk of my garage on um, on Bike Radar, in fact. Yeah, there's a feature up on there, which is... Uh, I do, I do think though, on that note though, in terms of like, where do we go? Uh, we are more refined than ever before. And we've gone to the extremes in a lot of cases. And I think that's indicative. Like when we, when things, the pendulum swings, right. And I think mm-hmm. as we swing from one side to the next, um, we event, you know, you know, that things are starting to get very tuned and refined when the pendulum swings back a certain way and starts to s- settle. Um, yeah. I feel like, there's a little, there's a bit of an element of settling and not in a bad way, but just in like the understanding, the education that we as 
the innovators within the bike industry are, are, are receiving in terms of the education from developing product is that we're learning what is best and fastest, what delivers like the ride quality and the experience that people most want to have. Um, you know, aerodynamics is one thing we saw, like basically the TT bike with drop bars. Well, that kind of swung all the way. You now it's kind of swung back. And now what you're seeing is like these race bikes that are, you know, 90% of the aerodynamics of anything that was ever made before. But because, you know, we're now using higher volume tires, um, we're getting more rolling resistance and, and, you know, things are just getting super efficient. Like the bikes we ride today are just so fast. And it's the only explanation for how I'm faster on a bike today in my 40s <laughs> than I was in my 20s. And it's like, yeah. it's absolute truth. Like I go faster on a bike today than I did 15 years ago. And, you know, some of that is, a result of the product that we're writing. Um, Maybe just taking better care of yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, as I say, when I was talking about like the, you know, the, the, the weight weenie craze, the early noughties, I mean, that was everybody pushing to the extreme of lightweight and it, it got to a point where it sort of got ridiculous. And then we saw that with the aero road bike, you know, when you've got bikes that were so focused and so fully pushed out there, you know, I think, you know, something like the, spe the species of Vengevius, you know, comes to yeah. mind. You know, such a complex bike, so fast, so good, but so incredibly complex and so difficult to actually live with that, you know, that's kind of been reined back and integrated into the tarmac. But the new tarmac is just, you know, it's, it's super, super aero, you know. And so I, I do, you, do you think the industry needs to be pushing in, you know, let's push right out in this direction for this and then this and then this and they bring it all back. You know, I mean, especially as a good case in point, when you think about the first gen future shock equipped yeah. um, Roubaix yeah. with, you know, the flexible seat post and, and everything like that, like mm -hmm. the current generation of Roubaix has actually reined a bit of that back, got a bit sportier, geometry's, you know, steepened up again. Yeah. Um, case in point with Trek, Trek's new Domani is, you know, effectively an aero bike with big tire clearances that's that's foregone a lot of that kind of complex ISO speed stuff. I, I guess as they learn more about how they can do that, but with composites rather than you yeah. know physical physical things. So you know, do you think do you think that's the way it's you know we the people have been pushing you know areas of that Venn diagram of comfort, stiffness, lightweight, and um, speed, etc. Aero. They're pushing back, and now they have to converge to to make a better product. Yeah. And yes, I think so. And I think like the, the pendulum swings and it settles, like we did, you know, bikes like the bench vice are a great example it is really great in one dimension. Um, and then in others it wasn't. And so the pendulum swings and they had the next Venge, uh, which was a fantastic bike. And then they came out with the tarmac, um, the current tarmac and they're like, this is the only bike you need. And I can all but guarantee you there's another Venge coming. <laughs> some yeah, point, yeah. you know like like we know what the, we know what the arrow numbers are on the tarmac and they're they're not what the venge numbers were um and while the bike as a whole is very efficient and gets the typical consumer the one bike race quiver that they need um it's you know it's not the lightest bike out there and it's also not the most aero bike out there even within their own offering so you know the ethos is they introduced the ethos because now it's like here's this purpose-built climbing bike and you know, I think it's fair to say that, like, given the competitive nature of cyclists and the cycling industry, uh, there's there's going to be um, pushes back in. But when they push, when we push back into the more arrow thing, um, it's going to carry with it more understanding and learnings about what exactly made that 
is, is achieving that extra speed with that bike. Um, and it will be a more versatile bike than, you know, the, the Venge bias was, for example, if I was looking into a crystal ball, which I probably totally wrong, but like, <laughs> I don't think I am. <laughs> so, no. I mean, I think you, you have to make the bike that like the consumer needs that really like delivers that experience. And like the tarmac our melee, um, you look at all these bikes, like they're world tour level race bikes that can clear up to large volume tires. And this came from a need of like, we needed, you know, when we first started, um, with a world tour team, uh, I forget what our first year was with them, maybe like in 2014 or 15, you know, we were still in the days of having a classics bike and an aero bike and a climbing bike. And it's just like a lot of bikes. And so like it, it it's, it's a lot of waste, a lot of bikes. And you're talking about classic spikes that get used for two years. Um, and nowadays, you know, a tarmac or our melee is the bike that a team would race all road season, plus all the classics, um, because it has the versatility of tire clearance. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah. And, you know, where, where, will, where will the more arrow, you know, you look at the Madone and the Madone is a, super refined machine and it is it is that swing of the pendulum you know back to the super bike right like this thing is uber aero we've figured out how to make it light and oh by the yeah. way it's also not going to ride like garbage <laughs> you know yeah. it's also going to ride fairly comfortable so you could you could argue that's a bit of a pitfall for some consumers um you know by put but the bike industry you know as you say the pendulum swings and pushes to one extreme and then it comes back to more to the center again once it's learned a few lessons and goes the other way and arguably comes back and that pendulum sort of as pendulums do they swing less and less until you converge on an optimum setup but while that pendulum is swinging you get to the extreme of one end say the madone slr let's take that as an example that I've ridden this year. It's incredibly fast. It's incredibly quick. It's incredibly stiff, but it's, it's not, you know, it's possibly not going to be the bike for everyone, despite the geometry being quite acceptable. Shall I say you to use, to use a term because, you know, it's just too aggressive for some riders. And I, I guess that's one of the pitfalls that are, you know, someone shopping around for a carbon frame, you know, people need to look out for. You talked about the, you know, striking a, a great balance with your, you know, your custom, your 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 custom uh, framed bike, for example, over at Envy, and um, it just occurs to me that that's always going to be a pitfall for consumers as well as sort of indulging their passion as well. Uh, or maybe I'm being a bit uh, a bit a bit um, a bit down on the subject, but uh, yeah, it always feel it feels like there's always a risk to take there. Well, yeah, I think what we're seeing though is like you you get a bike like the Madone, and it's a great bike for that customer who's chosen that they want and they prioritize above all else, like speed and yes. efficiency yeah. like they they're willing to give up a little bit in the weight category to have the aerodynamic efficiency for example yeah. or or in a racing term there is potentially the need you know if it's a lead out guy or somebody um you know doing a itu triathlon type stuff mm -hmm. um crit racing you know whatever it is like where where you just need to get that machine up to speed and then you're holding it there you know it's it comes down to competition right and making the thing that's going to perform best um and those those niche those niches become more defined and and uh you know you have the bike for everybody that's sort of like here's a great road bike that's going to do everything which is a bike like uh you know the melee um yep. Yep. but it it certainly is not the most absolute end-all be-all aero bike we could ever produce um we we uh, know we know we left aerodynamics on the table um in 
in order to ensure that the bike was uh, stable in crosswinds and light enough to be a good climbing bike. So again, it's always about finding a compromise that is meeting the objectives of the product. I have one final question for you, Jake, but just before, before we let you, uh, before we let you uh, sort of go on, um, I reckon about, uh, and it was certainly something that I was looking at when I first got into road cycling and we're talking 10 years plus, you know, ago um you know uh, unbranded carbon frame um carbon manufactured frames etc were were seen to be potentially unreliable or had a reputation as being so is that one of the is that still a thing these days um or you know do we need is there other certain standards of carbon manufacture that's brought frames up to up to a safe specification across the board these days do you have do you have any opinion on that at all i guess is what i'm asking and uh, warren i'm sure you have an opinion too my I guess my take on that is, you know, I, I guess if there's if if the company has a website and they have and it looks like they would be held to a standard um, yep. in terms of integrity and following uh, the safety protocols as defined by the governing bodies that are, then you know, if great. I think it really comes down to unless you. I, I guess at the end of the day, I would not buy a bike from somebody that I can't call if I have a problem. Sure. If if I can't call That's you and have rope. if I can't call you if I have a problem or if I can't call you and ask you what a torque spec is on the seat clamp or you know if there's not a listed warranty and then I think you're kind of rolling the dice and. You know, that's up to you to decide what what value you place on your uh, well-being. But um, yeah, we see a lot. We see a lot of counterfeit envy products in the world, and we only see and hear about them when they fail and break. And the customer and there's frankly there's counterfeiters that are doing some phenomenal work in terms of masking that the product is counterfeit. And it really comes down to like at the end of the day, we're able to see, oh, that serial number is not an envy serial number. Or we don't put a QR code on our products ever here in this spot or whatever. And I, I just I don't think it's worth it to buy product that's not from a reputable source that has a customer service team and a warranty policy. Yeah, I think yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go with that. I mean, there are you know sort of un, unbranded frames which are coming out from effectively you know Far East vendors, which are perfectly serviceable frames. You know, you you see them branded under you know lots of small micro brands and stuff and and that's fine i think the one you know the one thing i would advise anybody to avoid is is kind of website marketplaces that are selling premium products like envy like you know uh, all of the big guys out there have had some pretty horrendous kind of experiences with with counterfeiting yeah um that i would never go near you know if if the price looks otherworldly and and like wow that's amazing it probably is otherworldly and out of this world yeah yeah. so you know i i would I would try. I mean, I've I've been to, you know, um, I went to specialised anti counterfeiting operation when I was in, out in the states a few years ago, yeah. and actually got to tear apart a couple of counterfeit frames, mm. and you would be frightened to ride them because, I mean, w- one in particular which looked, for all intents and purposes, like a Tarmac SL5, yeah. um, when we ripped the head tube off it under just a normal testing protocol. Mm. It, I think it was like one layer of carbon fiber on the outside and inside was kind of a mixture of random offcuts of fiberglass and mm. um it, but the fiberglass was more you know it was more resin than it was actual fiber it was just 
you know, uh, and, and just sort of go, oh my God, you know, it, yeah. it literally, it's frightening. A, a death trap. Yeah. You know? And so I would never ever go onto, no. you know, establish supposed, you know, marketplace websites that, um, Selling things at unbelievable prices, and and I suppose you'd have to carry that some of that logic over to buying secondhand as well, just ensuring the frame, being able to see the frame. I mean, that, I mean that's a whole podcast in itself, right? Yeah. Around secondhand secondhand bikes, but you know, carbon as well. Secondhand, you don't know the life it's had potentially, um, etc. It could age the frame in a way. Jake, you may have an opinion on that, uh, but you know, it's it's um, it's you have to have a high threshold for yeah. Yeah, definitely. What should pass, right? I mean, I guess, I guess, it, you know, it'd be a question on, on probably more applicable to the customer than anything else is, um, it, I mean, I know you guys have an exceptional warranty, but how, how would you approach, say, if somebody had, you know, bought their dream bike, their custom road and had a bit of an off, you know, it, would your, would your approach to be, we can take that tube out and replace it? Or would your approach be, we'll make you a new frame? Or is it dependent, dependent on the uh, actual? Yeah, I guess it, 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 we've had, we've had instances already for sure. So, um, we had one, we had one unlucky customer who, yeah, he second ride on his bike. He got in a head on collision with, uh, Ooh. a co-ed on a, on one of those scooters, you know, yeah. the, and you know, on a bike path and it, in it, you know, it damaged his bike pretty substantially enough, enough to where we had to rebuild him a frame. I mean, we, uh, yeah, like with any of our bikes or any of our products, we have a fairly um, sound warranty. You know, once you're in the Envy family, we want to keep you there for life effectively. And so uh, with Custom Road, we've basically um, created a program that if you order, you know, once, if your bike is damaged or broken, um, we have a as affordable a way as possible for you to replace that, that bike. Um, if it is some sort of a manufacturing defect, um, you know, heaven forbid, then we just build you a new bike. You know, if it's something we screw up, we take care of it. If it's, you know, an unfortunate accident that happens to the rider, we have ways to get them back on a bike for as cheap as possible or as affordable as possible. So, um, you know, again, it's, it's trying to provide that holistic ride experience, everything from like, yeah. not just I mean, the product itself. I guess, I guess itself, it's one of those things experience. that, you know, People always talk of, you know, it's another criticism that carbon fiber can come under is like the unrepairability of it, so to speak, you know, and people will say, well, you can get your steel bike repaired and you can get your aluminium bike repaired and yeah. that sort of thing. And yeah, you can, but my thought has always been, but would I still trust it? Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. if I'd replaced it, you know, if I you know, put a massive ding in the down tube of a, but don't know, worry, someone a, buffed of it a out. Bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Someone's buffed that out a bit. And it's like, kind of like, well, yeah, but is it still, you know, is it compromised? Is it? The, the beauty of carbon is that it doesn't have a fatigue life. So unlike, you know, aluminum, for example, aluminum will fatigue over time. Um, carbon does not necessarily do that. So as long as the, the resin is intact and the fibers have not been broken or cracked or damaged, um, you know, the bike can last forever. Um, you know, most people will get bored with their carbon bikes before they actually wear one out. And so, you know, when you're looking at a used carbon frame or you're looking, you know, wondering if your bike is still good and safe, uh, the answer is, you know, as long as there's not any crazy, you know, as long as there's not any like soft spots or cracks that are visible or impacts, like chances are the thing is, you know, good to go. Um, and we see, you know, we see carbon wheels on occasion that are uh, still in service that are some of the original wheels we shipped. And in the same way, you know, we're still seeing, you know, there's 
30 year old carbon bikes out on the road still here and there um that you'll see and so uh you know you know pending pending a catastrophic you know impact um or abuse to to a carbon structure whether it be a handlebar or the frame or a wheel set um you know that's kind of the beauty of carbon is it it's not going to just get bad over time or with use no one of our one of our colleagues um oscar huckle he he's one of our writers here and he used to work uh, at a carbon repair uh company before he before he worked here and he, and he says often that you know you know you fixing carbon is quite is a you know you can do that and it's it's very very much an, it, not an easy i wouldn't say easy thing but it's a it's an accessible thing to do um and in some cases as uh, you know i've heard i've heard the notion somewhere that you know some cases a carbon can come back stronger after it's been fixed than it was when it initially went in um obviously if it went in really broken then that's a that's a fact, but um, you know it's, it's it's amazing what what people can do with carbon, and it's important as well because carbon can be a little difficult to recycle. Um, maybe, maybe it's one of, one of the one of the issues you know in the carbon industry at the moment that's a, an issue. So you want your products to last a long time. So it's great that it doesn't have that that fatiguing ele- element to it, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> I think I think do you know I I know Warren. Do you have any other questions? No, no. I mean, I think we've um, I think we've taken up most of Jake's day. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Itching, itching to get to work. You know, we've got all the time in the world, but Jake's an important person. I don't know about that, but I am I am uh, expected in another meeting. So, I'd- well, then we should leave you to it. Yeah, we should leave you to it, Jake. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, uh, to, to you listeners, thank you for staying with us for what an hour and 20 minutes now. Thank you very much. Um, be sure to join us for our future pods on frame materials. We've got some coming up in the works. Uh, they'll be they'll be coming soon to a provider near you. Um, now, if you have any comments or questions about this pod, do get in touch. Uh, send us an email at podcast at bikeradar.com. Um, and obviously, of course, we'd really appreciate your feedback about the pod, um, good and bad. Um, and the best way you can do that is share um, share a rating on your chosen pod provider. Um, get in touch. Let us know what you think. Um, and yeah, uh, it's been great talking to you guys. Jake, thank you very much for staying on with us. And uh, Warren, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to our next uh, frame material outing. And um, thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 